Well, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Josh. I'm so glad you've chosen to be here today. As we said, today we're covering a sensitive topic. We're finishing up our series called Let's Stop Pretending. The truth is we all have closets in our lives, no matter what they represent or when they formed. We've got them, and uh, there are parts of our lives we just wish people would stay out of. In fact, we'd rather not visit them ourselves because sometimes to visit those closets, to get into those spaces and those experiences that we have had can be pretty painful. And so we're not honest with others, and we tend not to be that day. I don't get to do that today. Today we're talking about something more delicate. And um, there are two reasons that we need to talk about difficult, delicate, or sensitive topics. The first reason is because we experience them. I think we have a way of having terminally casual relationships where we only talk about things that are convenient and comfortable and... um, you know, find some common ground with people, we tend not to talk about the, uh, the painful places in our lives. That's the first reason is because we all experience them, whether we would like to admit it or not. The second is that the Bible addresses them. I think sometimes we have an idea that when God had scripture written, it was written about spiritual things and about things in the future or stories from the past, but it doesn't really have a lot to do with my life right now. And today we're going to pull back the curtain on God's word a little bit today, and you're going to see that it has everything to do with your life right now. It meets us where we live at street level. So as we uh, get into our uh, final message on this teaching on relationships, we're going to talk about problems that arise in marriages and in the home. Um, This message is loaded with a lot of information. I don't like to do a lot of reading, but today, because of the nuance of the information, I will be doing a little bit more of that uh, in light of the things that we have to bring to bear today. I want to start with this quote. You'll see it on the screen. Things are not always what they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. Maybe you've met someone who has that kind of perception. You're telling them one thing they're hearing, they're kind of reading between the lines. They kind of understand what's going on, even though you haven't said it in so many words. We have this pond behind our house. Ducks and geese love to fly in, and especially this time of year now, it's, it's thawed for the most part. It'll be frozen again, I'm sure. But it's thawed out, and, and they just come land there, and they feed and all of that, and it looks so calm and so serene. But if you've ever watched a video or been to a zoo where you can get below the water's surface and see what's happening beneath the surface for a duck and a goose, what looks still and calm on top of the water is actually quite active and frantic looking underneath the water. Those little webbed feet are kicking and paddling like crazy to keep them in the place where they need to be. And our lives are like that as well. Things are not always as they seem at first appearance. There are things happening. And so many times in our lives, what we can see in others' lives or what we project from our lives onto others is a very different picture from what's happening beneath the surface. It's true that we've all undergone pain. We've all been hurt. We've all been wronged. We've all been violated in some way. Some of us, severely so. Others of us, maybe just more average along the normal pathway of life. But today we're going to talk about something that really is insidious and has a very effective way of lurking beneath the surface of many people's lives, and that is abuse. Talking about abuse today, and right from the start, I need you to know that part of my burden is to avoid pitfalls on either side of this conversation. 
The first pitfall that I'm working really hard to avoid today is to call normal relational struggles abuse when they're not. They're just normal relational struggles and, and sometimes tragic and disappointing decisions that we make. I don't want to call something abuse that's not. But the other pitfall is this, to allow abuse to remain present and not call it what it is when it in fact exists. So I don't want to ignore abuse if it's actually happening, and I don't want to call every little relational struggle abuse, if that makes sense. But we have to define abuse, and how would we know if we saw it or heard about it? We're going to use this definition today from Jeremy Pierre, who wrote a book called When the Home Hurts. He says, abuse occurs as a person in a position of greater influence uses his or her personal capacities to diminish the personal capacities of those under his or her influence in order to control them. All right, so this is someone using their influence, using their power in order to diminish the capacities of someone else. It's about, abuse is about power and control. Whether or not the person has a position of influence or power, they put themselves in that position so as to be powerful, to control the situation, to control the person. I use my abilities or my influence or my power to, to harm someone, to control them, to subjugate them, to use them rather than to uphold them, to lift them up, to value them. So that's really what we're getting at when we talk about abuse. And just to help you understand how pervasive this is, not only in the world, but in our world, I want to show you some statistics, and I'm afraid they're pretty startling. Here are some statistics on abuse. Did you know that 25% of marriages are abusive? You can look at statistics and they will show you that it is as common in the church as it is in culture. There's a lot to be said about that stat right there. I don't have time to entertain that today, though I could in a personal conversation. One in four women experience violence at the hands of an intimate partner. And one in seven men experience violence at the hands of an intimate partner. This is not simply a male issue or a female issue. There are problems on both sides here. So if that statistic is true, then here is the difficult truth. It's happening to someone that you know. It's happening to someone that you know. Let, let's just use Halstead campus of Bridgewater. Let's just presume that today between both services, we're going to have 350 people here in this room. Let's assume then, based on our surveys, that 196 of those 350 are women. That means there are approximately 49 women who will be present here today who have experienced violence at the hands of an intimate partner. Now let's go to the other side. Out of that 350, let's assume based on our surveys that we do every November that 154 were men. That means that approximately 22 men in this room have experienced violence at the hands of an intimate partner. The total is about 71 in this room between this service and next who have experienced violence at the hands of an intimate partner. And that's just physical and domestic abuse. Almost half of all women and men in the U.S. have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner at some point in their lifetime. Here's the deal. Abuse is happening more than we know. And today, 
We're going to bring God's word to bear on it and shine a light on it. Here are some more statistics. Do you know that one in five teen girls report that at the threat of a breakup, their boyfriend threatens self-harm or to harm them? All you have to do is interact with young people to understand this is all too common. One in three women are sexually assaulted. One in six men have experienced sexual abuse or assault, whether in childhood or as adults. What's more, one in ten high school students have experienced physical violence from a dating partner in the last year. So I guess I say that to say we're not reaching deep into the bag to pull out something to talk about. You open the bag and it's just right there. That's why we're going there. Darkness Evil and wickedness are rampant, not only, as I said before, in the world, but in our world. And there are many people, perhaps even some of you, living under this kind of oppression. Today, the goal is to bring it out into the light, expose it for what it is, and help us to see God's heart towards it. So in order to understand God's heart towards uh, the abused and how he feels about abuse, what I want to do is... Uh, begin by going to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or a device, navigate to Luke 4. Jesus has just returned from Galilee, northern Israel, and uh, he's kicked off his public ministry, and he's come back now to his hometown in Nazareth, and here's what happens. Verse 16, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 61. He says, I've come to bring good news to the poor. He talks about captives being released and the oppressed being set free. But who are captives? What's he talking about here? The word captive refers to a prisoner of war. This is an allusion to Israel when they were exiled and held captive by another, another nation. But it also refers to them being spiritually held captive by Satan. And Jesus is saying, I have come to set people free from this kind of captivity. The word oppressed that Jesus uses is a word that's it's used to, to mean to break something down, to cause it to be uh, less than whole, to crush it, to cause it to, to bow under its weight, to lose its validity. So here's what Jesus is saying in this announcement as he start, starts off his ministry. God's heart for the oppressed is clear. He wants them free. So if you're taking notes on our app or on your own today, this is something you're going to want to get down. God's heart for the oppressed is that he wants them free. He's come to set free those who are being held captives, not not only spiritually, but physically as well. Some of you are living in the world of abuse right now. Some of you know that you are. And I would guess that some of you don't even know that you are, even though you are. But I also think this is true not only for the victims, but I think this is true for the abusers as well. I think it's very possible there are those in this room who are abusive and don't know that what you are doing is abusive. What I hope to do is shine enough light on it today that we all see that abuse is wicked and evil and God hates it. You need to hear that right up front. God hates 
abuse. Not only does Luke write about God's heart towards the abused, but the psalmist, Psalm 72, records God's heart toward the abused as well. Psalm 72, 12, is, um, it says this, He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. Statistically speaking, there are many in this room who have experienced oppression, violence, or abuse. You've gone through some terrible things that you probably don't want to speak about, would struggle if you were asked to. It feels like those things are breaking you, making you less than whole. That sounds about right. That's what oppression means. I want you to know that God sent Jesus to have a ministry of setting people in your situation free. Spiritually and physically, he cares about you. I also want to acknowledge, too, that there are so many different kinds of abuse. Physical abuse, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, economic abuse, verbal abuse, and then there's endless combinations of all of those. It's messy. I submit to you that I am not an expert by any means, but my goal today is to bring as much of this to light as possible, to educate all of us, to call some of you out, probably, and to give all of us hope. So we've provided a handout. Hopefully you were given a handout as you came in. That's going to give you information that I just cannot cover in this time with you from up here. And so you would do well to look at that, take that home. It's designed to help educate you on abuse, but also point you to resources that can be helpful to you no matter what role you're playing in these situations. I recognize some of you may be the oppressor, knowingly or unknowingly. There are even courses that you can take, and we have people that we know who have gone through courses like this and have come out on the other side repentant and gentle and humble and restored. Healing is available not only for the victims, but also for the perpetrators as well. God cares about both. But as I said before, darkness is rampant and in a room this size, it wouldn't surprise me to find out that many of you, uh, have, us have ex experienced some kind of abuse in our lifetime. It could even be that you didn't even know that your situation qualified. It's kind of how you grew up and now it's kind of how life is and so you don't really understand it, but you only really maybe have a sense when you leave that environment and feel free and like you can rest and like you can relax, and then the anxieties begin all over again the moment you return. God cares about you and your situation. He loves you, and he wants you to be free. But I have a little bit more to say from God's word toward victims of abuse, because I think there's another really tricky thing that can happen when we are undergoing abuse, and that is to think that somehow We've done something to deserve it. We've asked for it. We've put ourselves in that spot. We never should have done that. Consider what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. We'll show it to you here. Jesus speaking, and then he added, It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, immorality, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within, and they are what defile you. 
Catch what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the very actions that people take that oppress or abuse us don't come from us. They come from the person who commits the acts. It is the, from the person's heart that these things come. This is an overflow of who they are. Catch that. Meaning when I sin, it's not your fault. When I sin, it's my choice. I have made that decision. And when someone else sins against me, it is their decision. We always have a choice. And if you've experienced any form of abuse, I want you to know this. The abuse is not your fault. The sins I commit come from within me, not from you. I am accountable for my actions. I am accountable for my reactions. You are not accountable for my actions. It's not what you wore. It's not what you drank. It's not that you were at the wrong time, at the wrong place. It's not just that he's an angry person or she's, she flies off the handle all the time. It's not how difficult they are to get along with. People are responsible for their own actions. And perhaps as I talked about abuse or you even looked through some of the descriptors of abuse on the handout, a few alarm bells off in your mind thinking, oh no, is this me? Good. Good. Not good that, that you're doing something, but good that we can recognize what's going on and call it what it is so that we can actually do something about it. It must change. That's just a glimpse into God, God's heart towards those who are abused, towards the oppressed, how he feels about abuse. For the remainder of our time, what I want to do is look at four responses to the problem. So whereas in the first part, everything we just covered, we really talked to those who are victims of abuse or oppression. Now, we're going to shine a spotlight on those of us who find ourselves in positions of power or privilege or influence. And how God's word applies to us. And to do this, I want to go to an Old Testament passage of scripture. So for some of us, this is going to be way out of our context. If you've grown up in church, this shouldn't be that big of a deal for you. If you've grown up outside of church, uh, I'm going to do my best to paint a picture to help you follow along. We're talking about the Old Testament, the, the beginnings of God's working with people as he worked through the nation of Israel through a series of kings. We're going to talk about one particular king, the second king of the nation of Israel. His name is David. You hear a lot about David. In fact, even without knowing David, you know David. You know David from the David and Goliath stories that you've heard. This is that David. We're going to go to a, a pretty dark time in his life that probably didn't encapsulate all of his life, but certainly did this time in his life. Here's the deal. He's the king of the nation of Israel. His army is going off to war. The old custom was when the army goes off to war, the king goes too. The king actually leads his army into war, but something is wrong in this case. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, maybe you're there on your own. Maybe you're following along on the screen. Here's what it says. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that the writer wants us to capture that fact that normally these kings go out and they go fight. 
Often the kings were some of the greatest warriors because they had the best training. David didn't. He remained behind. So he's home. Why? Because he can do that. He can make the decision he wants. Why? Because he's in a position of power. So David's not serving. David, in his power, is entitled and thinks, I think I'll just hang out here. That's what I'll do. But he let the captain of his guard take the army to go out, take care of things. If it wasn't a big deal, I don't think the writer would have mentioned it. David here, just in a small way, abused his power. And this brings us to the first response that those of us who find ourselves in positions of power or influence need to have. First, we've got to serve others. You were given your position, whatever it is. You have your influence to serve others. David, in this case, did the opposite. He's serving himself. But we need to serve people. We need to put ourselves last. Let me talk to you men here for a minute. In the home, you are called to lead. As husbands in your home, you are called to lead. And your leadership is about serving your family, serving your wife. I get it. It'll be difficult to outserve the people in your home. I'm certainly in that spot, but you nonetheless are called to serve. Even aside from the home, many men and women in this room are in positions of influence, of power, of leadership. We've got to use those positions to serve. I know we know this, but how many times have we heard of people in positions of power or influence abusing their power for their own benefit? Let's keep going in in this this account. Verse 2, 2 Samuel 11. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, I want you to notice a few things that were happening here. David, he, he got his nap in. That's good. That's important. You need your rest when you're, you know, not fighting in the battle that you're asking your whole army to fight in. You need your rest. He looks out over a city, which I imagine a king might do. I've been to Israel. I've been in the supposed spot where David's palace would have been and, and saw how easy it would have been to look over the surrounding area. This wouldn't have been weird. And as a leader, he's looking out over his nation. You know what he's, he's not doing, at least in this account? He's not praying for his nation. He's not begging God for wisdom to lead his nation. He's not pleading with God to help his nation worship and serve the one true God. Now he's taken in the beauty. He sees a woman on her rooftop bathing. So not only is he supposed to be at war, but he notices a woman who, by the way, we learn is not his wife. We find out later is married to one of his soldiers, one of his class A fighting soldiers. His eyes are about to fall out of his head. He objectifies this woman, sees her bathing, turns her into an object, and this takes us to our second response. Second response when we hold a position of power or or privilege is this. We've got to value others. We've got to value others. In In an abusive situation, there's always a power imbalance, even if it's manufactured. And the other person, the victim, is dehumanized or objectified in some way. They're an obstacle that's in the way of what I want. Or they're a vehicle that I can take to get me what I want. And David sees this woman as an object. Here, David is the one looking. What we learn is that this woman is doing a ceremonial cleansing. 
She's participating in ceremonial worship following the law. While she's honoring and obeying God, doing something well within her right to do, David dehumanizes her, objectifies her, and turns her into an object of his desire. He doesn't see her as a citizen to care for, to protect, to look out for. He sees her as something that he wants. He does not value her in that moment. We covered in earlier in this series about the one thing that all good relationships have in common is honor. That's devoid of this. This situation is devoid of that. Take a look at what happens next. Verse 3, he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That information alone should have stopped David dead in his tracks. She's the granddaughter of a trusted advisor. She's the wife of one of his mighty fighting men. She's the wife of someone else. What did David do? Then David sent messengers to get her. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now remember, people are responsible for their actions. It's not about what they wore or drank or what they did. Abuse is about power over and objectification of. It turns out, Bathsheba was doing what the law commanded that she do. So this does not begin with Bathsheba. We do not get to say, well, look, what, look at her. She was asking for it. No. David is accountable for his actions. He's accountable for his choices. He didn't take responsibility. He didn't go to war. He didn't lead. He abused his power. Abuse in the home or in the church or in the workplace always begins with an abuse of power. Abusers leverage their power to gain advantage over other people. So notice what David did next. He, he sends men to find out who she is, gathers the intel. As if the intel wasn't enough, he then sends men to get her. I have a feeling that when a king sends for you, you're summoned, you show up. I mean, the men, after all, went to inquire about her. The messengers, after all, went and went ahead and brought her. What are you going to do? Here we have a king who abandoned, he abandoned his calling as someone in power. He objectified another man's wife. Eventually, what David will do, we would learn if we kept reading, is he would set up Bathsheba's husband to have him murdered. For David, this is all about him. And even though the text doesn't explicitly say it, he forces her to come be with him. This leads us to the third response we need to have when we find ourselves in a position of power or influence, and that is this. We must empower others. We've got to empower others others. Abuse, again, is about power. It's about maintaining that control. But however, what we're being called to is to empower other people. Men, empower your wives. We've got to use our influence, our position to lift others up, to empower them. Some of you, maybe men or women, entered into marriage thinking, how can, how can you serve me? What can you do for me? As long as you show up and do your thing, we're going to be okay. And instead of serving and empowering our families, we work to keep them under our power and our control. 
David used his power so that he could control other people. Lastly, I want want you to see how all of this ends. I'm going to do a bit of storytelling here for the sake of our time together. In the very next chapter, a man named David comes to, or a man named Nathan comes to confront David. Nathan was a prophet. Basically, he would hear from God and he would be God's mouthpiece to the people. So Nathan comes from God to David with a message wrapped up in a story. Now, David had spent his younger years as a shepherd. God, being wise and knowing David's heart, gives Nathan this story and appeals to David's heartstrings. Here's what he does. Nathan comes to David and says, I need to tell you a story. There was a a poor man who owned only just a tiny little lamb, and he loved this lamb. It wasn't livestock to him. It was so precious to him, it actually ate at his table. It slept in his bed. It was his pet. Some of you are crazy about your pets. I, I know that you know what this is like. We only ever had outdoor dogs who did what they were told. They, they barked squirrels up trees and went and retrieved pheasants and did stuff like that, but never slept in my bed. But some of you are like, oh, I totally know what you're talking about. But this is a lamb, and this, that's this guy's approach to this lamb. Now, there was a rich man also who was going to have some company come in. But this man had, this rich man had many lambs, a lot of cattle. But it was time to prepare a meal for his company. So what does he do? He takes the poor man's lamb, slaughters it, kills it, prepares it, and feeds it to his guest. This is literally what Nathan says to David. Well, David freaks out. David is so upset that if somebody would take something that belongs to someone else who already had so much stuff and uses it. Nathan, I have to imagine, looks David square in the eye and said, you are that man. You did that. Let's just pause for a moment because David's not really on a spree of making great decisions not really in a good space right now. I have to imagine Nathan told this to David at risk of his life. Nonetheless, he says to David, you're the problem. Another problem is many times abuse goes unconfronted and and, and, and unknown. It's hidden, as we said, beneath the surface. By God's grace, though, we see that David receives this accountability from Nathan. He repents. Now, he can't bring Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back to life. But what does the man's repentance look like? Thankfully, God has given us Psalm 51. You can write that down. You can visit it later. This is David's response to Nathan confronting him about this sin with Bathsheba. And it leads us to our, the last response we need to have when we find ourselves in a position of power or position. And, and that's this. We must accept accountability. We are not above accountability. Abusers do not like accountability. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to David and says, you're the problem, and David responds with repentance. We need to be willing to be Nathans in our world and have the hard conversations when there's something wrong going on. Let's not assume also that any of us are immune to abusing our power in subtle or in egregious ways. 
But there's something more that we need to see here as we consider David as an example of an abuser. As I said before, David in his youth was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to tend for sheep. This shepherd boy became a mighty king, perhaps the greatest king Israel had known, despite this account that we just read. I believe that God intentionally designed David to set up the appearance of Jesus when he arrived on the scene. See, David as a king and as a shepherd was limited, he was flawed, and he was sinful. And when David was tempted, he misused his power to abuse and oppress. But enter Jesus, not only the king of Israel, but the king of kings, not only a shepherd of sheep, but the good shepherd, the shepherd of people. When he was tempted, didn't grab onto power for himself, but instead voluntarily gave up independent use of his divine attributes. Jesus came to serve and to die and to set captives and the oppressed free. This means that your hope, that our hope, is in Jesus. Consider this about Jesus and Paul's words. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And this is how followers of Jesus are called to live. And there is hope because Jesus came not only for the abused, but for the abusers as well. He can change the hearts of both. But there may be some of you wondering, what is my hope if my oppressor chooses not to submit themselves to God, doesn't relinquish their power or control or repent? As a victim, your hope has to be anchored in something more than the possibility of your abuser's repentance. While there is hope available, your, while there is help available, your hope needs to be anchored in Christ. You can and should do all that there is to do, but you need to let God do what only he can do. You cannot change anyone's heart, but God can do that. And just like ducks on a pond, I know that there's probably a lot happening under the surface. And this is why building relationships with people, allowing people access to our lives is so important. We need others to speak into our lives and help us to see what's really going on, what's really true of our lives. We need people to advocate for us and in some cases confront us and tell us what we need to hear. So let's get real practical here. What do we do moving forward? Let me give you three suggestions for moving forward. First, Know that speaking is redemptive. Abuse is sin. Sin grows in the dark. When it's allowed to be hidden, it can flourish. When it's exposed to the light, it's shown for what it is, and it shrivels and dies. Perhaps speaking about your situation would be the first step toward bringing it out into the light. Talk to someone who can be trusted or even the authorities. I want to be clear when it comes to abuse in marriage because I know there can be some confusion. It is not unloving to do something about an abusive situation in a marriage. God's design and desire is for 
a husband and a wife to honor each other. When that's not happening, the marriage is not flourishing. When you get help, you take steps toward a flourishing marriage and a husband and wife honoring each other. I know even in church, we uphold forgiveness and unity and and, and all of that. And let's get together and let's work on this. And I'm not saying you don't do those things, but you don't have to do those things to the exclusion of getting help involved. Sometimes getting the help involved, the authorities, someone trusted, even a counselor, can be a step toward the marriage being what God has designed for it to be. God himself has given governmental officials authorities for our benefit to see that his will is carried out in the world. You are not dishonoring God, getting help. Ladies, I just would like to say to you, if you need some encouragement or looking for a path forward, what do I do? How can I take steps toward healing? We talked in the feed about the IF gathering coming up. That may may be a great opportunity for you to plug in with some other women to begin some relationships that can help set you on a healing path. Secondly, I'd like to suggest to you or commend to you really Psalm 27. Read it. Meditate on it. I would encourage you to rewrite it in your own words. Psalm 27 is a psalm of an oppressed person. Rewrite it until it accurately reflects your situation. Talk to God about your situation. I think we made his heart for you very clear. Thirdly, if perhaps you are or have been guilty of abusing other people, I would suggest to you the Men of Peace course. It's on the handout. I personally know individuals who have gone through the course and have experienced restoration and repentance. It is not without cost, but the cost of staying in the same pattern and rhythm you're in is much greater than the cost of enrolling for a course like this one. There's hope available, there is help available. And it won't all be solved today, but today, perhaps, for you, can be the day of the first, next, right step. Let me pray with you, and we'll invite the band to come up. God, we're so grateful that you love all people. I'm grateful today to acknowledge, based on the truth of the Bible, that your grace is big enough for those who have been violated and for those who have violated others. The truth is, God, that no one has violated us greater than we have violated you through our sin, through our rebellion, through our own personal wickedness. So I pray today as we look into your word and try to figure out what to do and where we go from here, you would help us to be quick to acknowledge our own wrongdoing, but secondly, that we would be quick to get the help we need because you don't desire for anyone to remain in this type of situation because you've made your heart towards it very, very clear. We're looking to you. Where else could we look? Give us the courage to do what we need to do today. And I pray that today could begin the healing process for many people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.